if you would, open your Bibles or Bible apps, however you prefer, uh, to the book of 2 Timothy as we continue our series 2020, looking for the gospel from one cover to the next. Uh, so 2 Timothy was actually uh, the first book that I ever preached through. I don't, for some reason, it was, it was just six years ago. Uh, but remember, uh, Timothy was this shy, backwards pastor, kind of terrified of the, uh, the thought of, of leading this church. And at the time, I could, I could really relate, uh, just kind of, man, the, the thought of, of pastoring. You, you've heard my story. It was, it was never on my radar. And so, uh, man, just, just that fact, uh, I, I really connected with, uh, with, with 2 Timothy. Um, so uh, this is the last letter that Paul would write. And so I think he knew it. He, he did know six very quickly before we dive in. Uh, Paul wrote this, For I am already being pour, poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, so Tim, uh, Paul was writing from prison, and this was Rome's Mamertime prison. It was a cistern some 12 feet underground that they had converted into this holding cell. Now, it was against the law for Roman citizens to be thrown to the lions, but they could be thrown in this hole in the ground until the day of their execution. And it's been said, dying man speaks, we would do well to listen. So what would Paul's last will and testament be? Well, uh, as we can guess, in two words, it is the gospel. And so let's listen how the gospel continues to affect our lives here today. After a, a brief introduction, thankful he is for Timothy's faith, Paul gives some imperatives. Uh, imperatives being commands. Listen, this, these are of vital importance for your faith as you continue to move forward. First of all, it's the gift. And uh, this one actually comes with a little hand motion. Everybody try that with me. Stir up the gift. Yeah, that you'll, it'll help you. It'll help you. Timothy 1 6 that says, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, this is, of course, the spiritual gift of pastoring given to Timothy. And so Paul says to stir it up. It, it's a phrase that means to rekindle or reignite. Now, if you drank coffee this morning, if you, um, of course, you had to stir it up. To get all the flavor, the best flavor. And that's kind of the, the idea behind this phrase. And best out of what God has given you. Now remember, this was to Timothy, this backwards, passive pastor. And so this implies that there was temptation to just to not develop it. To, to not get the most and best out of it. To listen to the attacks of Satan that said Timothy wasn't good enough. That he wasn't qualified for this job. There, there was a long list of guys who could have been there, should have been there, rather than him. All these things may have been true, but God gave Timothy the gift. God called Timothy to this position, and really that's all that matters. So stir up the gift to get everything out of it that you can. And so maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, this is, this is very nice. Uh, God called Timothy to pastor. He gave the, uh, Timothy the gift to pastor, but I'm not a pastor, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, actually, yes, it does. Uh, the same word for gift is used uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 to describe other spiritual gifts. There are at least 18. And we see in Scripture that God, through His Holy Spirit, gives every believer at least one at the moment of salvation. And so you can tell your neighbor and you can write this down. If you know Jesus, you have a gift. 
If you know Jesus, you have a gift. You can check out this list. Uh, at least 18. Administration or ruling. Uh, apostleship. Discernment. Evangelism. Encouraging or exhorting. Faith. Giving. Healing. Helping. Hospitality. The list continues. Knowledge. Leadership. Pastor. Shepherd. Prophecy or perceiving. Teaching. Serving. Mercy. And wisdom. Now the truth is, in a healthy church... Uh, when each believer is stirring up their own gift, then the church functions the way it should. We don't need everyone to be the pastor. We don't need everyone teaching. But every role is important because every role is God-given. And so the imperative to stir up the gift applies to each one of us. So, so think about this. We can stir up a lot of things. Uh, we can stir up division amongst ourselves when we say negative things about each other when we refuse to agree on, on things when we take a biblical stance on something that really actually isn't biblical uh, then the full flavor of division comes out we begin to stir in some some hatred along with selfishness and pretty soon the church looks nothing like what it was intended to look like and anyone on the outside might very well say who wants to be a part of that we can stir up a lot of things. We can stir up rebellion. Uh, and, and some of us know exactly what I'm talking about because the full flavor of rebellion is evident in your life. We can stir up complacency. We can stir up uh, spiritual shallowness. We can stir up fear by listening to the lies that Satan tells us that we better just sit back and, and watch and not get involved in God's work. I think Timothy uh, wrestled with that one and probably all of these. Because there, there are always going to be temptations. All those attacks from Satan, they, they lead to fear. When, when we listen to the lies of Satan, we will live in fear. This next verse will always now remind me of church camp a few years ago. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. See, God gives us spiritual gifts, but fear, the spirit of fear, is not one of them. So understand what the spirit of fear is versus just fear. Because some fear is God-given. Uh, I should be afraid of sticking my hand in a fire. If, if I'm walking through the woods, I should be afraid if I see a copperhead to step on that I should be afraid of, of stepping on that copperhead. But a, a spirit of fear is different. See, this is God-given fear. When, when we're afraid... When we, when we react to a copperhead, that's, that's God-given fear because it protects us from things that could harm us. But a spirit of fear is different. A spirit of fear is always living scared, always living worried about what could happen to the point of being crippled by it. A spirit of fear is, is consumed with the possibility that there could be a copperhead around any and every corner and any and every log. A spirit of fear listens to the could-be's and the what-if's and makes those the loudest voice in their lives and so that God's voice of truth can't be heard. But God has not given us a spirit of fear but of, what is it? Okay, you got to help me out a little bit. Wake up this morning. Power. It's power, yes. And of course, where does our power come from? Christ. I can do all 
things through Christ who gives me strength. So it's power and help me out again. What's the next one? Love. God is love, right? And a sound mind, a phrase that means that our minds are under self-control. It's, it's a mind that doesn't allow all the voices coming at us to bombard us and to cause us to live in this spirit of fear. These are the things that we, we are to stir up in order to get the most and best out of this spiritual life. Power found in Christ, love who is God, and a sound mind. Stir up the gift. Don't stir up a spirit of fear. Number two on your outline, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Remember, imperatives, commands. This is the next one. Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And so the imperative or command was to not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus or the gospel. Now, now be reminded, Paul was, this is Paul. Where, where was he coming from? From prison. He was in prison because of the testimony, his faith in the testimony of Jesus or the gospel. He must have written this because he knew there would be temptation to be ashamed of the message of Christ. Notice how it's described in these verses. Verse 9 says this, it has saved us. And we know what that means. It has saved us from an eternity in hell, hopelessly separated from God. And I think we would all agree that is significant. Verse 9 also says that it has called us with a holy calling. And so uh, the, the, the gospel gives us a purpose with eternal results. Eternal results. That too is significant. Uh, verse 9 also says that it gives us God's grace. We cannot fathom, I don't believe, uh, how significant the grace of God is just yet. When we see Him face to face, I think then we'll understand. But right at this moment, I don't think we can. Verse 10, uh, death has been abolished. Again, uh, our minds can't fully comprehend the weight of this reality. And so don't be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, the dictionary defines ashamed as being embarrassed because of one's actions or associations. And so church, how can we ever be ashamed of something that has saved us, who has put a, an eternal calling on our lives, who has given us God's grace and has abolished death? How can we ever be ashamed of that? But that's the reality for some. Satan has so twisted the truth that many times we would rather not be associated with Jesus. That's the message that we send when we don't stand up for truth or we don't act any differently than lost people, when we laugh at what is appropriate, when we wink at sin, when we indulge in sinful behavior, we're basically saying, I don't want to be associated with Jesus because he is embarrassing. Because truth be told, the pressure comes when we do stand up for what's right, 
when we do live life like we know Jesus. The voices begin to attack. Culture begins to attack. And it becomes easier just to go with the flow. We know those voices, don't we? You really believe that? Who do you think you are? How, how can you claim to know Jesus after what you've done? You should be ashamed of yourself. The next blank's on your outline. This is, this is God's message. The voice of shame is not the voice of God. The voice of shame is not the voice of God. The voice that is saying, you're not good enough. That's not God's voice either. Because he said, uh, actually you are good enough. I'll trade my son's life for yours. God's voice said this in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God's voice says, listen, even before you were born, I had a purpose for you. God's voice says, come home, prodigal. I'm waiting with open arms. God's voice is the voice of comfort. God's voice invites us to find refuge in Him. God's voice doesn't condemn His children. And if you're not one of His children yet, God's voice invites you to experience the free gift of life. So the instructions from Paul, no matter where it takes you, no matter if it makes you uncomfortable, no matter if if someone looks down on you for your faith, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He would uh, write it like this earlier in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of Christ, the power of God, to salvation for everyone who believes. 2 Timothy 1.12, there again. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know, not feel, not think, but I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So, stir up the gift of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Number three on your outline, hold fast. Hold fast. 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now, the Greek word for the, for the phrase, hold fast, is echo. It's echo. It, it, it's a word that describes actually the closeness of a bond between a mother and her unborn baby. That, that bond is, is breakable. And if you think about it, uh, an echo just kind of keeps going and going and going, kind of like a mother's bond with her child. That's the instructions. Continue to have an unbreakable and continuous bond with truth. We'll see later in chapter 2. There were a lot of lies being fed to this church in Ephesus that were shaking their faith. If we continue to read here in chapter 1, many did not hold fast to their faith. He even mentions a couple by name again, like he did last week. Uh, this time it's Phagellus and Hermogenes. When the going got tough, they folded. They were ashamed of the gospel. They didn't hold fast. They didn't stir up the gift. Instead, they stirred up division. And it hurt Paul, and it confused the pe people in the Ephesian church. And so he tells Timothy, don't be like them. Hold fast your faith, because your faith whether it is strong or weak, has an effect on someone else. If you waver in your faith or are inconsistent 
all over the board. People will notice that and be affected by it. Some could be led astray by my lack of faith. Some could be hurt by my lack of faith. Some could be turned off to the gospel by my lack of faith. But if you hold fast, the same is true. God can use your faith to inspire others to keep the faith. So we see when it comes to faith, the stakes are quite high. We must hold fast. We must persevere. Let's continue to number four. Stir up the gift. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Hold fast to the truth. Number four, be strong. Be strong. And, and just like uh, we can stir up a lot of things, we can also be strong in a lot of different things. And so the imperative is specific. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So it's, it's not... Uh, be strong in your own strength or the strength or promises of someone else. Be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. And we can say without any doubt, no one is more gracious than Jesus. Uh, speaking of Jesus in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of of grace. So what does it look like to be strong in that grace? Well, we know, we understand what it's like to be strong physically. We understand what it's like to be strong mentally. But being strong in the grace of Jesus is, is different than we might think. First of all, it's being weak in ourselves. It's being weak in ourselves. Um, Paul quoted God in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, uh, my grace is is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Your grace is enough. In context, uh, Paul was describing a thorn in his flesh, likely not a literal thorn, but a figurative one. It could have been a person. It could have been a handicap. Either way, he asked God to take it away, and his answer was no. My grace is enough. My power is made perfect in weakness. And that word perfect, it doesn't mean, doesn't imply that God is imperfect. Perfect means complete. And so God says, my power is made complete in your life, in your weakness. Being strong in the grace of Jesus means being weak in ourselves. Because we realize uh, my strength really isn't that strong after all. Uh, secondly, it means standing on the truth. Standing on the truth. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, verse 2 says, uh, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in other words, Paul's saying, pass on the truth of Jesus, how he changes lives and how he continues to affect every area of our lives daily. Pass it on to others so that they will pass it on to others. And on and on and on the truth continues to roll. We must cling to the truth. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. So that when we do stand up for it and opposition comes, we're prepared. Because we're not trusting in our own strength, but in Jesus's. And because we're standing on the truth of the word of God, we're going to be okay. Because that is a solid foundation. It is the standard for truth. 
One of the biggest reasons why our nation has become so ungodly is because we traded the foundation of the Word of God for something false. And the result is what we see in the news each and every night. Church, we cannot trade the foundation of the Word of God for anything better, for anything more truthful. And even as those around us buy into all these things that will not last, we must stand strong in the grace of of Jesus Christ, and that means being weak in ourselves and standing on the truth of the Word of God. And God's Word uh, goes into a few specific examples. The next blank's on your outline. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Uh, verse uh, 3, you therefore must endure hardships as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So what do a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer have in common? Well, they're, they're all committed to something bigger than themselves. They're willing to sacrifice and work hard and endure for the goal of winning the war or winning the championship or bringing in that harvest. They are examples for us as Christ followers. Look at verse 11. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Man, ever since I discovered them, I've loved those, those verses there, verse 13. Now, at first glance, it, it, may, it may appear that verse 12 and verse 13 contradict each other. It, they say, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Anytime we see uh, what could be a contradiction in the word of God... We just got to do a little bit of studying to find out what it really means. Denying him in verse 12 implies completely rejecting him. Not accepting that free gift of salvation is what we would call a lost person. But being faithless implies that one had, has accepted Jesus but struggles in their faith. But we all understand what it's like to struggle in our faith. The promise is that God's faithfulness does not depend upon our faithfulness aren't you glad of that everything comes together in second timothy as we get to chapters three to four as we begin to close stir up the gift of god in you don't be ashamed of the gospel stand firm in the, in the faith be strong in the grace of jesus number five because persecution is coming some of you thought that uh, that blank was going to be jesus didn't you but in this case persecution is coming Chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away if if these words describe the last days 
do you think we might be in them? Verse 12 says this, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So if we were looking for good news, that things are going to get better soon, um, we're not going to find it here. In fact, chapter 4 says this, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Uh, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So the word of God warned us that we would find ourselves right where we are. And as I read those, those verses initially, as I was working on this message, I just kind of shook my head. And I thought of all that's going on in our nation, and I sensed the voice of God saying to me uh, that I am more than capable of the same thing. And he's right. If I don't stir up the gift, if I allow all that's going on around me to cause me to be ashamed of the gospel, if I don't hold fast my faith in the strength and the grace of Jesus, there but by the grace of God go I. We end with the foundational truth of the word of God. Chapter, two, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And it's like he's speaking to each one of us here this morning. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we stand on the word of God? Because it's inspired by God. It is profitable for doctrine, it said. What we believe, why we believe it. It's, it's profitable for reproof. Uh, the Holy Spirit speaks through his word to our hearts and tells us, listen, you are going the wrong way. And then it corrects, hey, listen, this is the way you should go. And then it gives instructions for righteousness. This is the path that you need to, to stay on, to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus wants you to live. The word of God thoroughly equips us to stay on that path. How important is the word of God to you? Uh, of these first four points of the message, which one needs most work in your life? Stir up the gift. Do you even know what gift God has given you? If you have questions about that, there are, there are resources out there to help you find that gift. And, and I would love to, to help you with those. Uh, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Stand fast in your faith. Be strong in the grace of Jesus. We go into a time of invitation. You just answer a couple of questions. What has God said to you? And what are you going to do about it?